Welcome back to the Comic Book Historian Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today we have a very special guest, Joe Staten, born in North Carolina, grew up in Tennessee and graduated from Murray State University in 1970. Been, he's been a professional comic artist since the 1970s and beyond, now working on the Dick Tracy comic strip. We have the detective comic artist, Joe Staten. Thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan, and I'm looking forward to this a lot. So I just, I know you're originally from North Carolina, but you moved to Tennessee. How old were you when you moved? Born in North Carolina, Air Force Base. You know, we, we got back to Tennessee, and then I grew up in West Tennessee. Yeah, that's my part of the world. So were you, your father was in the military? Yeah, the Air Force. Polk <laughs> uh, Air Force Base is, is where I basically hailed from, starting comics. They always had comics around, and I was always reading the newspaper strips. As you know, I go back to Dell Westerns and Dick Tracy and the, and the Phantom from the, the strips. I just go way back when. Now, were you reading comic books too, or just what was in the newspapers? I was reading comic books a lot. Like I said, I started, I guess, with the Dell Westerns, the Lone Ranger. I remember the Lone Ranger a lot. Roy Rogers. Yeah, I was reading a lot of those actually before I knew much about superheroes. Then were you starting to draw them? I know when I was a kid, I was always copying pages out of the, the, the books and things. Were you doing copying at early age? Oh, yeah. The family story is that I, I don't remember if it was age three or four, but I was found in the middle of the kitchen floor trying to trace Dick Tracy and the Phantom from the Daily Strips. Oh, that's awesome. So, for trying to be a comics guy, I go back at least till three or four. So oh, uh, wow. before that, I don't know. So tell us the story about, at age 12, how Julie Schwartz is partly responsible for you getting into comics. I love that story. <laughs> I guess that would be when I was realized that Julie was publishing Letters of Comment, that story. Yes. And, and I started sending letters to... Green Lantern, Justice League, and Julie actually printed a, a few of my fan, my letters. Actually, I wrote a letter to the Justice League, like commenting on everybody who was in the Justice League. And I remember I said Green Lantern was a rotten Robin Hood. And Julie edited my letter to say he was a second-rate Robin Hood. So, wow. so my, my contacts with you know the, the world of comics is being edited right off the bat. By Julie Schwartz. That's awesome. From that, your address was published in those letter columns, and then you got connected through to fanzines and science fiction fandom because of that, correct? Exactly. It's funny. Bill Plott, who's a science fiction fan in, in Opelika, Alabama, sent me his fanzine, Maelstrom. And that was the first I knew of the world of science fiction comics fandom. So I kind of went from contacts with Bill to Southern Fandom, Southern SFPA, Southern Fandom Press Association. Yeah. Started doing my own fanzines. Now, the kind of funny connection there is that Bill Plott contacted me on Facebook. So I am back in contact with Bill after all these years. So everybody's still around doing oh, that's a, great. Bill on his, on his fanzine now. Now, is this science fiction comics or science fiction like Ray Bradbury and other other writers? Yeah, it was mostly writers, you know, novels. Uh, novels, yeah. 
yeah, I was a big Philip K. Dick fan, that sort of thing. So, oh, but, yeah. Yeah. And and had you read the Wally Wood EC comics, or was that a little bit before your time? That was a little bit before my time. I didn't really get exposed to those till till a bit later. And you were exposed, though, to some comic professionals during this phase, right? Like, you had some contact with Dan Atkins? Oh, yeah. Danny was kind of my, my contact to uh, certainly the whole Wallywood circle. He was always kind of a depressing guy, but he, mm. <laughs> but that was kind of his persona. But he was always willing to answer questions and, you know, just give me tips. And he, he was also, when I came to New York, I stayed with Steve Stiles in Brooklyn. Mm. And Steve was a good friend of, of Danny, so we kept up the contact there. So you're saying Dan Adkins was a kind of a depressing guy? Well, that was kind of his persona. He always wanted to tell you just how awful it was trying to make a living and oh, how see. hard it was to just keep going. But I, I think he was just kind of keeping, I guess, a, a realistic attitude on things. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, you were involved with SFPA, but you also interconnected with other regional science fiction groups as well, like the LAS, FAS in Los Angeles, and also a New York one. Was there a real sense of community back then about, about this? Yeah, there were, I guess, in SEFPA, the Southern group, there were members from outside the area from L.A., Bruce Pells and people like that. I was in contact with the L.A. groups, and Lynn Bayless and Arnie Katz were in the New York groups, and they were still part of CEFPA. Like, I, I guess they were associate members or, I don't know, expat members. I don't know. But they, they were part of, part of CEFPA. I had lots of good contacts in New York, especially in Brooklyn, so that I had those contacts to fall back on when I came to New York. So let's talk about that for a few minutes, because I'm curious about that. You moved to New York after graduation from Murray State. What was your intent in moving? What were you trying to do? Trying to work for Marvel in D.C.? Yeah, that was that was my intent. I was going to give it a shot. I, that was I Basically, that's what I always wanted to do, was to, to draw comics. And I'm not sure if I actually believed I'd make a go of it, but I, I figured I would feel awful if I didn't give it a try. So what that, was your what was your major in college? I was an uh, art major. Art uh, major, okay. Yeah. I, I guess mostly more art history, but a lot of studio art and minor in journalism. So, ah. uh, yeah, I'm I'm still in contact with other art majors from Murray. So, still all around. Mm-hmm. Were you, at this point as a graduate, were you studying other comic book artists? Were there ones that were influencing your developing style? Oh yeah, I was I was kind of always studying everybody and I was always a great Steve Ditko fan and certainly Chester Gould and, and Flash Gordon. I was you know Bernie Wrightson was coming around in, in those days and you know with his easy style and yeah I was I was kind of following everybody. And then in 1971, I'm not sure if it was 70 or 71, your future wife joins you in New York, correct? Can you talk about about her a little bit when you met her. I know it was her in college uh, at a program, but I, I want to hear because y'all have been together an awfully long time, and that's great. I'm a divorce lawyer, by the way, so I, <laughs> I especially appreciate it. Yes, I always introduce Hillary as my first wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were on a program called World Campus Afloat, where we kind of recommissioned uh, 
cruise ship went around the world and stopped in various ports, and we had college classes all the time on the, on the ship and excursions in port. So we were in the part with Europe, hit a bit of Africa, came around South America. I managed to spill, spill a, a Pepsi on the leading socialist artist in Uruguay, things like that. But you got, meet, got to meet all kinds of people. And actually, I, I met Hillary's roommate early in the, the cruise and didn't really make contact with Hillary till you know, pretty much toward the end. We were various people in the classes were giving, you know, like guest talks. And we were both in an art history class, and I, g- I gave a talk on comics, obviously. So, of course, Hillary likes to remind everybody that she asked a question about animation, which I couldn't answer. So she, she embarrassed me first time I had public dealings with her, and we went from there. Hmm. So it keeps on going. She decided to move to New York as well to start her career? Yeah, fortunately, Ronald Reagan, she was from California. She was going to be a special ed teacher in, in California, but Ronald Reagan had come into office and was in the process of destroying the California educational system so that there weren't any uh, any jobs for her. But she had relatives on Long Island, and she set up some interviews back east, and she came out to check that out. And, you know, I, I, I hope, you know, Part of her motivation, she was coming to check me out. We wound up back together in New York. That was awesome. And, and by the time you got married, you were becoming disheartened about your potential in the comics industry, and you were actually thinking about going back to school to study museum restorations. Is that oh, right? You you have done your research. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I had enrolled at, at Hunter. They had a museum restoration program, but when we got married in April. Oh, I know. And then I'm going to transfer to Alex to talk about your honeymoon, because that's one of the best stories ever. (laughs) So that the day after you get married, you're off to your honeymoon and you only have enough money to go to Connecticut. Right. And Alex, take it away. Yeah. So then, and I remember we spoke at the LA Comic Con recently about this. And so you had just gotten married and you drove to Kirby, Connecticut over to Charlton. Is that right? To Derby, Derby, Derby yeah. Connecticut. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. We were we were just headed to Mystic in Connecticut for kind of overnight out of town, and I had taken Mar- samples up to Marvel and uh, DC and hadn't made any progress. And Charlton, which was you know recall Charlton was the bottom of the barrel in uh, <laughs> uh, in comics, but bad printing, not much pay. But they were on the way, and they were comics, so we decided, you know, let's give it a try. I'll take in my samples on the way. And actually, Hillary went in with me. George Wildman, the editor, said I was the only one who ever came looking for work with his wife. (laughs) So we went in. They were very nice to us then, and I left with an assignment, a ghost story. Uh So I was actually in comics at that point. So you mentioned George Wildman. Who did you meet? in that meeting that you spoke to that led to you being hired? Well, Sal Gentile was still the main main editor then, and George was his assistant. Mm -hmm. So I think George was kind of my good luck there. Mm -hmm. So George kind of poked Sal and says, you know, this one might work. Uh, Sal retired not too long after that and headed to Florida. So George was the uh, still the, the main editor then. 
Mm-hmm. And then did you show them any of your fanzine art as part of that? Or did you just kind of meet them and through verbal conversation, you got the assignment? I had some ghost story samples that I had done. There you go. I had done one, two, uh, two stories, I think, for Warren. But mm-hmm. that never read, led to anything else. So I don't, don't particularly count that as a start. I still said had samples from that. Oh, from so, your Warren stuff. Okay. Yeah, I still had those samples. They thought it matched with their ghost stories, their horror books, just fine. They gave me uh, gave me a Joe Gill script, and uh, I was Joe I was, Gill. Yeah, and that and that's what I was going to ask is who wrote that script, and because you did a lot of short stories, you did anthology, romance, horror titles, and was Joe Gill the main script writer that you had worked with in the beginning? And did you meet Joe Gill? Oh, yeah. Joe was quite a character. He was like their go-to guy for writing everything. Joe would just come into the office and sit down and start writing. And he'd write, I don't know, five or six short, sometimes horror stories, sometimes war stories, a lot of romances. You know, by the end of the day, Joe wasn't quite sure what he'd written, but he'd have a stack of script and he'd be, you know, pass them out. So, oh, that's awesome. Like a force of nature. He was. Um, Yes. He was, huh? So when you say he was a character, like, what, did he joke around a lot? Or what do you mean by that? I kind of always describe Joe as being like the embodiment of Popeye. He was kind of a grouchy, gruff sort of guy, but had a you know, real sense of humor. And if you keep the Jim Beam away from him, he could just keep going, writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe, Joe was like a kind of an old-time newspaper sort of guy. I, I don't think he did newspapers, but he was like a pulp writer. He'd, he'd sit down and just, just, just write. Oh, that's awesome. At, at his typewriter, huh? That's cool. Oh. Yep. Now, you mentioned the Warren story. I th- you, you're pr- you might be talking about the story that you did for Creepy 42 in 1971. So did you meet Jim Warren? How did you, how did you get that job there, that assignment? Well, Billy Graham was the editor then. I did meet Jim. I never quite got a handle on what to do with Jim. And the office at that time, they didn't really have a waiting room or anything. So you, what it, you kind of had to wait around downstairs until it was time to come up and talk to Jim. Uh-huh. So I never quite a hand, got a handle on what to do with, with Warren. So I did, I don't know what I do, I did at least one story that was published, and another one, I think, that was published later after they closed down the company. It was published somewhere else. Uh-huh. But So I did, I did a couple of stories, a couple of stories for Warren. Mm-hmm. And that was when they were in Pennsylvania when you, when you met them? They were in the city. Oh, they were in New York at the time. Okay. So then your first regular series for Charlton was Primus. Is that right? Yep. So tell us what Primus was for, for people who haven't read it. Primus was a, a syndicated story about skin divers. By, it was put together by Ivan Torres, who had produced Sea Hunt. It starred Robert Brown, and it, it had some stuff about spies and adventure, and sometimes it was done really cheap, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was fun. I, I would go around to like boat yards and such place, try to do get reference for uh, boats and skin divers, and I got a lot of reference on boat, on, uh, on fish, we had... Had some good stories about barracudas. Joe Gill was writing it. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Actually, Joe did a pretty good job. It ran for about seven issues. It was a short-lived TV show, though. Is that right? It, it didn't last very long. It didn't last long, yeah. Yeah. 
And do you know on, on your end, did Joe get like plots from the TV people and then he came up with the stories or would he have to kind of generate the stories on his own for that? I guess, you know, they're, they're Bible, you know, who the characters were. Yeah, there you go. But certainly you just give that to Joe and he sits down and suddenly there's, you know, there's a couple of books worth of primus scripts. Yeah, that's awesome. He sounds like an interesting fella. So you were there at the same time as Pat Boyette, Jim Aparo, Steve Ditko. Did you get to know any of them while you were at Charlton? Well, I kind of came after the big move of a lot of the guys moved with uh, Dick Giordano to right. uh, D.C. D.C., yeah. So, uh, In the late of, 60s, yeah. Yeah. Jim Aparo left with Dick, but I certainly you know, met Ditko and Pete Barisi and those those guys. So Pete Barisi, yeah. yeah. So how was meeting Ditko, and and under what circumstance was that? It was just you know at the office. And he he liked what I did. It was nice to me. I was uh-huh. uh, really in awe of him. I met him again at when he was at DC later. So he he was always very nice to me. Was he kind of quiet? He was kind of quiet. He he could always come up with something to do at Charlton. He did a lot of his own writing. He did got a lot of the scripts from Joe Gill. And uh-huh. so, yeah. Did you know that Morrissey was a cop? Yeah, I think I did hear about that before. Yes, Joe, uh, you, but you, but only in passing. You can that, you can verify that, right? He was a police officer. That, in fact, is one of the first things I found out about Charlton when we went in that first day, and Sal Gentile was was still the editor, and Sal Gentile talking about who worked there, and they says, "Oh, you know, now 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 Pete is a New York cop, and they have the they, they were telling me this like up front. They have these moonlighting rules. You can't take other work while you're." a New York cop. So that's why this stuff was signed P-A-M. Oh, that's cool. I guess it was an open secret, but it was moonlighting on the fly there. It was one of the first things I learned about Charlton. Yeah. So then with Charlton, so was it mostly just mailing your stuff in or were you kind of going to the offices a lot? I didn't go up to the offices a lot. Mostly it was mailing stuff in and that was before Federal Express. So that was kind of iffy. But I would go up to the office, you know, a few times, uh, you know, hang out. Right, sure. Now, tell us, you co-created E-Man with Nick Cutie, who recently passed away, and that was in 1973. You guys did a lot of work together. We did. And that was you and Nick, right? Yeah. And you guys did initially a 10-issue run. First, when that book came out, tell us about the origins of E-Man. I read a bit from him, from a trade that he had written about the origin a little bit that there was initially the idea that he would be some factory worker that was caught in some experiment, some accident, and that you specifically didn't like the idea about that and wanted to make it something a little more interesting. Tell us about the co-creation of E-Man. Well, like you said, I, I did a lot with Nick, and mm-hmm. Nick had come on as the assistant editor working for George and doing a lot of writing of the short stories on his own. And I, I did a lot of a lot of Nick's horror stories. And his stuff was different from Joe Gill's, that was kind of humane and had a lot of humor. Mm-hmm. And so we hit it off. We liked working together. And at one point, there was some, I guess, you know, Dick Giordano had had the action heroes and uh, right. tried a line of, of heroes. And there was some talk of, of Nick starting a line. Mm-hmm. But... The management kind of stopped that, but they let Nick go ahead with his E-Man character. And because because I had 
worked well with Nick. He called me up and wanted to know if I'd be interested in, in working on that. Like you said, you know, we uh, came up with a, a different origin and it worked out well. Yeah, I love the origin because I was reading over it last night. I love the art in it, first of all, and the humor in the text is fun too because you have Nova Kane, who is an exotic dancer trying to pay her way through college. And then I really like the origin of this energy manifestation that gains consciousness and then starts kind of figuring out what he is and interacting with humans. It's a real unique idea. First, so it went for 10 issues. Were you sad to see that the book was canceled? Did you enjoy doing it? I loved doing it. And and I was, was sad when it was shut down so quickly. Nick had plenty more ideas to keep going, but it really, really didn't sell at all well. Yeah. And it surprises me because it is really fun. It's really got everything people, a lot of people like about comics in it. So maybe it was a distribution issue or something. I'm not sure. Now, did you think at the time that that was that was the end of the character and you just basically had to move on to other projects? Did you think, okay, well, that's it for E-Man? That is what I thought at the time. I, I really didn't have any idea that there would be other possibilities. Mm-hmm. Joe, I just want to add that I was 13 at the time, and I got to say, Nova Kane was a, a big thing for me. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, I, you're, you're not the only guy I've met who was about 13 at the time who really yeah. liked Nova. It's, it spoke to me, that's for sure. Yeah. A fo- she's a foxy character. I mean, that's brought to my attention that there's a shot of Nova in an Egyptian. Yep. A, a milk bath, I think, with, with slaves. And that, that seems to have had a good reception. I remember that to this day. It's in my head. <laughs> so now you and Nick uh, co-created another character that a lot of people love, the detective Michael Mauser. And what, what a funny character that is. And even some of the dialogue between him and Nova Kane is fun. And the way he's depicted with you know, kind of a, a bit corrupt just from years of being a detective with kind of the gruffled kind of face, and there's a fly hanging around him a lot. Tell us about that character and how that came about. Well, certainly like Mausers, he actually had a Bowser at one point. Mm. A lot of guys who hung out with Wally Wood had guns. And, uh, oh, that's funny. Well, that, was, that was kind of the origin of the, of the name. But the look, Nick originally called for him to look like Arnold Stang. Nick was a great admirer of Arnold Stang and his voice. But this was before Google, so I couldn't quickly find any, any pictures of Arnold Stang, but I had pictures of Dustin Hoffman. You know, Papillon was out <laughs> So everywhere you looked, there were these ads for Papillon. And that's that's was my original look for Mauser. I based it on Dustin Hoffman there. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's right. Nick thought Nova being a decent person, but you know, pretty pretty tough in her way. You know, going up against Mauser, who is you know, um, he's not really corrupt, but he understands the ways of the world. Right. And and Eman coming from outer space is still very innocent. Yeah. So we had the conflict of Mauser and Nova as to who brings E-Man into the world. Who, uh, yes. Is he corrupted, or is he just exposed to reality, or is he still just a sweet guy who doesn't right. have to get a, get a handle on, on how, thing, how the corruption of the world is? Yeah, because there's this one funny line where she's like, well, I just think he's kind of a... A bad person. He's like, oh, he's not bad. Look, me and uh, me and him think you're a real nice, or uh, you're a real sweet broad. 
<laughs> or so, something, and then she was like, "Hmm, I, I don't know if I like this friendship or something like that." It's really, it's really fun stuff. You know, talking about Nick Cutie, he was actually really good friend to our Facebook group. He would always chime in when there were questions about Wallywood or or whatever project he had worked on. But what would you like to say about Nick Cutie? You guys were good friends. Oh yeah, we we stayed buddies, you know, kind of right to the end, and we would get back together over the years. That E-Man would pop up in a, from another small publisher or something, and we'd do something new. And he had a, a character, Cap- Captain Cosmos, and we did a few issues of Captain Cosmos, self-published, to kind of keep the idea out there. So. But Nick was, you know, it's just a great guy. Was, uh, the thing was, you have so many writers coming along in the last few years who think you have to have six issues or to tell a story and let Nick alone and he could tell a perfectly good story in six pages or 18 pages or one page. And so mm-hmm. he just loved comics. He loved telling stories. And he was a really sweet guy, but he's, you know, comes from a long line of Sicilians. So he, he sometimes try to sound tough, but he wasn't very good at it. <laughs> and, uh, he always would call up and say, hey, Giuseppe. And so, yeah, and I would go, you know, hey, Paisan. So we, you know, we, we, we were buddies for a long time. We just, oh, we just awesome. Yeah. And so now uh, around the time of E-Man, you started working with Gil Kane. How did that come to be? I was... At home, uh, we had moved upstate by then, and uh, I got a call out of the blue from Gil, and he occasionally used assistants and you know guys who help him with the layouts and stuff. And he says, "Hey, you want to work for me?" And I says, "Oh yeah, sure." And so I started doing layouts for Gil. Did that for a while. I learned learned a lot, paying real close attention to how Gil broke down pages, told stories, that sort of thing. Mm. Oh, that's awesome. So what was he like to work for? He was a big influence on Howard Chaikin as well. So would you say he was an influence on you? Oh, yeah. I think there are similarities in how Howard and I break pages down that can be traced back to Gil. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. I think if you follow the way things move around on the page, you, you can see similarities in what we do. You know, we went over to see uh, Gil just uh, a couple of times over in Connecticut. So I didn't work, you know, closely with him, but I worked uh-huh. uh, through the mail. Ah, that's awesome. And then would you guys have phone conversations? Like, would he give you feedback, things like that? Uh, yeah. You would. Yeah. And, and, of course, I always mention that Gil died owing me money. And <laughs> not the only one. But it was one of those things you accepted to work with Gil. Right, right. And and I think I hear that just about in comics industry in general back then. It just seems like there's a lot of debt there. Now, I've read that you worked on a French comic project of his called Jason Drum that looked a lot like the black mark work he'd done shortly before. What can you tell us about that? Basically, you've covered what I could tell you. It was a French oh. project, kind of a fantasy, a barbarian sort of thing, but with a lot of space stuff. And For years, I did a lot of layouts for him on it, and I had no idea if it was ever published or what happened to it. But a few years ago, somebody, I guess from France, actually published, they reprinted it in the States or or wrote about it to prove that it actually existed and that it was at some point published. So. Oh, in France. I see. So it wasn't intended for a French audience, but it did end up getting printed out there just just to show that it existed. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the uh, the details of that was. About the intent was, yeah. Okay. Now, you also did Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch with Tom DeFalco, is that right? Yeah. At um, Charlton. Yeah. So uh, how, how did that come about? And did you guys meet in person? Was that by phone call? How, how did that all happen? Golly, I don't even remember. I don't remember meeting Tom till we were both at D.C. and working on Superboy. Mm-hmm. But I must have met him at Charlton before then. It was just something that came up. I guess George wanted to you know, give me a shot at it. And it was always my mother's favorite book that I had done. And, you know, every few years she'd ask me if I was ever going to do any more books about the cute little cars. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And you also worked on other licensed cartoon properties like Scooby-Doo around this time. So this is before the later Scooby-Doo, right? No, I never worked on Scooby at, at Charlton. Oh, okay. I, I just worked on Scooby at... Just uh, the later, the like in the year 2000 or so. Yeah. Okay. You did a lot of other cartoon properties, though, at Charlton, right? Jetsons? No, no, no. no, no. I must have done other cartoon stuff there, but, you know, really is what comes to mind. That's the one that comes to mind. Now, then you also did live-action licensed properties like Six Million Dollar Man, Space 1999, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. First, who would write the pieces that you'd get to draw? Was that Joe Gill also, or who would do those? Sometimes it was Joe, sometimes it was Nick. I remember Nick wrote some good Six Million Dollar Man stuff. He had a had a feel for that. Now, would you watch the TV shows just to kind of get the likeness correct? Or did you draw them a little more generically? How did that happen? The producers gave us some reference, some photos, and we, we did the best we could to see the TV shows. And sometimes, I guess it was Space 1999, Hillary would set up a camera and actually shoot off the TV screen trying to catch <laughs> better better reference because we were always short of reference. Um, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I had I, read a story that you, at one point on $6 million man, had to check into a hotel to watch it because you did not have a, a functioning television or you couldn't get reception. Is that we, true? Yeah, we lived uh, way out in the woods up at the Catskills. So we checked into a motel that could actually get it. So that's that was how we were getting the reference. <laughs> you also did some beautiful painted covers for Charlton. Were those fun to do? They were fun to do. That Pat Boyette down in Texas had found a color separator who could put the accepts uh, for the printing for painted material very cheaply. And he brought it to Charlton. And Charlton was willing to let us, Don Newton, John Byrne, and Pat, let us do painted covers as long as we didn't expect to be paid more than we would for just a regular cover. Ah, okay. Well, that's, that's what we were doing. It was a lot of fun. It was fun, yeah. What would happen to the original once you turned it in? Was it pretty much gone at that point? Would you get it back? We never got them back. There are still some around. Well, Nick would salvage some, and I think Don Newton got some back. I don't think I ever got any of the painted covers back. Okay, so we're we're going to move to Marvel. It's it's running sort of simultaneously with Charlton, but you finally got some work at Marvel, and was that through Roy Thomas? That was through Roy. Yeah, I had taken samples around to Marvel, you know, a few times while I was still at Charlton. One day, Roy called up. This is how I get things. People call up out of the blue. Roy called (laughs) up out of the blue and introduced himself, told me a lot about himself, and asked me if I would like to start inking the Avengers. 
And I says, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Actually, the I kind of cornered Roy uh, a couple of years ago at the Heroes Con and asked him, why did he call me out of the blue like that? And he says, gee, Joe, I don't remember. We must have been desperate. So uh, that was <laughs> that was how I got to work at Marvel. Roy couldn't think of anything else to do. Now, had you already been at Marvel and they didn't know it? Were you doing anything for Gil Kane that was getting published? Yeah, I, I did quite a bit of stuff for Gil. Some of it would be published pretty much as I did it. Some Gil would redraw a bunch. There's one issue of Spider-Man that's entirely my work except for one arm that Gil redrew. And I'll uh, Ghost Rider. So, yeah, things like uh, Ghost Rider that Gil wasn't particularly interested in. He would just have me do my Gil impersonations, and, you know, he turned them in. So, so yeah. when Roy hired you, you didn't say, well, I'm already working for you, you just don't know it? I did not think to say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to talk, uh, You primarily when you were at Marvel during this period, you were primarily being used as an inker, correct? Not a penciler. Mostly. Uh, it was almost entirely inking the Avengers and, and then the Hulk. I did some black and white worked for Archie Goodwin for the, the black and white magazines. but So that was penciling. But mostly mostly I was doing inking there. I had read somewhere that you said that Archie Goodwin was your favorite editor you ever worked with. Is that true? It's very likely. Archie, Archie was kind of, my, kind of my patron saint. He would keep an eye out for me and kind of send things my way and figure projects that other people wouldn't think I'd be good for. He, he'd think that I could do them. And so, yeah, I'm not the only person who's like that, that Archie, Archie just had that kind of presence in the world. Oh, no, we get it from almost every single person we've ever had on the podcast. That's one of the two common, a lot of the common comments are, we love Archie Goodwin. And a lot of them say, and we don't love Gil Kane. Those are, so you've covered the, the two. Yeah, that's right. That's true. All right. So I want to talk about, I, I know you did some black and white magazine stuff, but I remember you as the anchor, especially your two runs on the Hulk, both with Herb Trimpey and with Sal Bushima. Talk about those a little bit, how it was working on runs of that character with two different artists and what your, your thoughts were at the time. Well, I got onto the Hulk. I was inking the Avengers perfectly happily with, with Sal and then one day, a package of Hulk art showed up, and I called, uh, Len Wein was the editor, and I called Len, and Len says, oh, yeah, we, we thought you'd be good on the Hulk, so we switched you. So nobody told me that I was doing a different book, so I was suddenly inking Herb Trempe. That worked well. It seemed we, we matched okay. I tried to pick up things from Herb's style so that it, you know, didn't clash, and then I guess Herb just finally decided he'd had enough enough Hulk and you know then Sal's Hulk was showing up and I tried to keep a little of Herb style in the transition into into Sal it was different they, they were different approaches to the art I guess Herb was more idiosyncratic than Sal Sal was more generic Marvel style and and Herb Herb really wanted to be Jack Davis but Herb alone that's what he would do so it, he had to be you know had to discipline himself to do the Marvel style, but he did did it fine. So, I, I yeah. never knew what to make of him as a Hulk fan because there would be these beautiful John Severin 
pages and then you would get Jack Abel or something and it would be like it was like looking at a different artist in a lot of ways and they were both interesting but so different and perfect. yours was seemed like you captured what Trimpey was doing without any putting your own on it as much which which I enjoyed when it came to Salbushima though like I recognized you in it huh? a lot more was that deliberate no, it it, it I, w- I was trying to follow each penciler as best I could. I got finished pencils from Herb more often, and I got layouts from, from oh, South. There you go. Well, yeah. that, that would be the reason there. Yeah, and I've, I do know what you mean about that Jack Davis. I've seen some Herm Trimp faces in the Hulk, like on some military personnel that look like Jack Davis faces. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing that. And then uh, in the 90s, remember Jimmy did like that image look for a little while, too. Oh yeah, he could kind of he could kind of change a bit. Now, are there artists at Marvel that sought you out that wanted you to be their inker, or were there artists at Marvel that you really wanted to to ink, or that you never got to ink and you would have liked to have? Well, I always wanted to ink Gil, but I never got the got the chance. And other than that, I was just I was assigned to. To either Sal or, or Herb, and and that's who I was inking. So then, as far as Charlton, so there was the Charlton Bullseye fanzine from '75 to '76. What work did you do with with that Charlton Bullseye fanzine? Well, there were some E-Man stories that hadn't been finished up for the the comic when when it shut down. So they mm-hmm. being finished in the uh, the fanzine. Right. We did a had a reprint. Uh, a few years ago of uh, the early E-Man stuff. So the uh, material that wound up in the fanzine was actually printed in color for the first time. In nice. That. So then the CPL gang was a group of comic fans who published the fanzine, the Contemporary Pictorial Literature, CPL, in the mid-70s. And it was founded by Roger Stern, Bob Layton. The CPL gang included Duffy Voland, a young John Byrne, Roger Slifer. Um, <laughs> all these people all became comic professionals by the end of the 70s. Did you have much association with them? You know, a little bit, uh, you know, the, for the fanzine. And so they saw early early John Byrne stuff. I guess I uh, saw, saw Duffy around uh, New York a few times when he came out. And, uh, yeah. Oh, and Slife, yeah. So, you know, the, the guys were around. The guys were around. And yeah. then I saw also in Charlton Bullseye fanzine issue three, there's a fun black and white panel picture of you, Nick Cutie, Roger Stern, and Bob Layton. And it says on the side, and you're talking to two people from the audience, and it says on the side, picture taken by Hillary Staten. Do, do you remember that? I'm not sure of the specific picture, but Hillary, Hillary took a lot of photos back then. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that would have been, you know, from the early cons. And so, yeah. And and she took one of the, at DC, when uh, Chris Reeve got a Hugo at the World Con in England, Hillary took pictures of Chris Reeve getting the award because DC hadn't thought to have somebody take pictures. So mm-hmm. whatever pictures they put out of that event, uh, those were Hillary's photos. Wow. So she probably has kept kind of a photo journal of your career. Is that right? Not uh, keeping it in order, but there are, you know, random shots here and there. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of the the artists that are kind of stag, the stag artists, kind of single, a lot of them just don't have any pictures, you know, at all. But, I mean, you probably have 
more around than they would because uh, she was there kind of helping you out a lot of the times. Yeah, and, and she was, you know, a good photographer and uh, kind of in the pre-digital days, and now she is still a digital uh, photographer. Oh, that's awesome. We have we have proof sheets around the house of who knows what. There are pictures of Nick cutting from the old Suling shows, and, uh, you know, it, it goes back away. Uh-huh. Now, how did you get up get set up with Mike Friedrich Starreach? Uh, you were in issue seven in 76. How'd that happen? I had been doing a self-published, well, I wasn't self-publishing. Johnny Oxiger was doing The Gods of Mount Olympus, and I yep. was doing that for him. And when he shut down, there were some issues of that left. And that's that. He, he found a possibility with, with Mike Friedrichs to print them there. So that, uh-huh. that was really my only only dealings with him. Oh. I, was yeah, just, yeah, so it was basically just finishing off. That, right. that canceled Charlton story, yeah. And then and then John Workman finished up the Gods of Mount Olympus. There you go. And then Tom Morzachowski lettered uh, some of that stuff as well. So now, was that a Canadian project? or And there was a paper shortage here, oh. so that opened up your time to do it? Like, how, how did all that turn out? Yeah, there was a, a shortage. That, that was still at Charlton. And that got a, a note from... Uh, I guess from George one day and says, these are dark days. There's nothing left to print on. Mm. All the printing paper, newsprint was was cut off for a while. You, you just kind of scrambled around and uh, Johnny contacted me. And, uh, there was there was time to do other projects. You know, eventually, the paper supply came, came back and I went back to uh, whatever I was doing. Mm-hmm. Cool. You enjoyed that, though, right? The mythology of that. I've heard you. I've read interviews where you said that you were really happy with that work, the Gods of Mount Olympus. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed doing it. Yeah, it was definitely something different. Has that ever been reprinted where it's accessible for our listeners today? I don't think it's ever been reprinted at all. I only have like one set of the original run, and a couple of those are because somebody at a con found them for me. At, at one point, I had a nice, a nice bound set, but I don't know what happened to them. No. And, and certainly, they've, they've never been reprinted. Well, that's awesome, Joe. Thanks so much for shining light on a lot of these questions we've had about the early half of your career. Stay tuned in two weeks for the second half of the Joe Staten interview, where we go into his DC Comics career and beyond into his current strips with Dick Tracy here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grand and Jim Thompson. Cheers. Cheers.